0: kind of throughout, right from the beginning, and this theme is the idea of suffering. How to suffer and how to suffer well for the name of Christ. And that is challenging in all kinds of regards as not one of us enjoy going through times of difficulty. Somebody we know uh, passes away and we mourn that person. And, and even though we know perhaps that they're in heaven, that doesn't necessarily just make everything easy on earth. Um, My good friend Matt Martins, uh, who came and preached at my induction uh, nine months ago, his father just passed away of cancer just the other day. And they they knew this was coming for a long time. And they had been preparing for this. He was given uh, a terminal diagnosis quite a while ago. And yet when that moment hits and he texted me, is I knew that there was hope and there was joy and yet there was still pain. Knowing that this man is going to be in heaven and knowing that Matt's going to be reunited with him doesn't just make the, the hurt and the grief go away. And those of you who have lost someone, you know that. For our own kind of day-to-day life is some of the sufferings that we've been given. Perhaps it's a physical illness. Perhaps it's a a very specific challenge in front of us or a specific person that is in our life that we just can't figure out how to help or how to how to Break through that wall and show them who Christ is, whatever it might be, uh, and, and specifically in Peter's time was persecution. And he was calling on them that while they suffer, that while they're being persecuted, they are to submit to the authorities that are persecuting them, and that there's no way around it, that's hard couple weeks ago, we looked at submitting to the governing authorities that are around us. Well, I, how many are thankful that tomorrow's going to come and tomorrow's going to go and we're all going to, well, hopefully all going to still be alive and just moving on? Is yes, there's serious implications for the election, but God is still on the throne. And that as we go forward from tomorrow, that regardless of whatever government comes in, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago and, and cross reference it back with Romans, is that God has allowed it and actually ordained it at this time the way that he makes it happen. And we maybe don't understand exactly why. Maybe it doesn't seem fair. But he is in control. And so what that should do for us is we could maybe even stop fighting a little bit. And maybe on Facebook, if you want to post something political, remind yourself that this is God's chosen person. And that sounds difficult. But remember, David in the caves, as he's been anointed as the next king. Uh, and the people tell him, David, just, just go kill Saul. He's awful. He's a horrible king. Just get rid of him. You know you're coming next. And what does he say? He basically says this, I will never lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Even though Saul was doing all kinds of terrible things and wasn't submitting to the leadership of God the way he should have, David still recognized his place under that. And so for us in the same way, so last week we looked at in the home relationally with our family and I got a little bit heated and I got a little bit uncomfortable and for a long time after I I just felt guilty but people kept telling me "Is and I know this but I'm just, I'm a people pleaser by nature. Any people pleasers? it's It's hard to, do this sometimes, is I should never apologize for what the word of God says. God has said it. It's his words, not mine. I'm just trying to tell you and read it and to show why it says what it says. So again, if wives and husbands, if you had a big fight when you went home after that, please don't blame me for that one. Uh, you can you can maybe listen uh, to that sermon if you missed it. So this brings us to chapter 3 into verse 8. And so this is kind of where we have been. And now Peter's going to take it back to a couple of these reminders to us. And then we're going to talk about this. Let me read the the rest of chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Peter says this, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the saints in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subject to him. So you can see kind of from 8 to 17, Paul rehash... pardon me, Peter rehashes what he has been saying. And then there's 18 to 22, and that gets a little bit confusing, a little bit dicey. We're just going to ignore that this morning. I'm just, I'm just joking. We're not going to do that. Um, I'm going to say this, though, is I don't know exactly what I think about those four verses. This is one of the few texts that I've come across where I've just sat there in my office, read through it, studied through it, looked at the different commentaries, looked at the different opinions, and just been like, I just don't know. And so I'm going to do my best to kind of walk us through this text. But if you disagree with me, uh, as long as you base it on Scripture, that's totally fine. Actually, I should say that always. If you—anything that I ever say. If you disagree with me, but you disagree with me based on what your understanding of Scripture is, and you have Scripture to support it, that's okay. We can still get along. It's fine. Um but i'm just going to do my best here in this so he begins this section finally all of you have unity of mind so he's given us a couple of things that are crucial within the body of christ that we would do so that the body of christ might be exalted elevated so that the people in the world can look at the body of christ and go i need that whatever that is and they might not understand they might think the church is weird they might think we're a group of people that do some pretty bizarre things uh and if you think about it in some ways there's all kinds of weird things that we as christians do right there's all kinds of weird things from the world's perspective they look at it and go why would you why did you do that why did you why would you pray at a restaurant for your meal that seems strange why does everyone all of a sudden bow their heads and get real quiet what's that about why do you why do you gather together and, and sing songs about jesus it's not a, it's, it, why would you do that and so there's all kinds of these things and one of these things peter calls us to is having unity of mind in our young adult bible study This is one of these moments where God worked uh, just in an incredible way. As I was kind of struggling with what was going to come next for our young adult Bible study, God just kind of kept putting on my heart Ephesians, Ephesians, Ephesians. And while we did it, now I'm just seeing that they're both just basically the same book. Uh, That's not really true. But they're dealing with a lot of the same things, and I keep going back to it. And Ephesians is all about the unity. Is Paul is encouraging us that despite the differences that we might have despite the philosophies the philosophical idea of worship Whatever those things might be that we can put those differences aside and recognize that we serve this, we serve the same Christ and the same Lord. And so while some people might worship this way or some people might have kind of this particular Tradition that they do uh, as long as it's not against what scripture teaches then certainly we should all be able to get along Because Jesus is the head Of all of the church and this is one thing that's very important how many of you had opportunity to do some international travel you ever notice that they don't quite do things exactly the same way that we do it first time that i went somewhere uh, uh, it was one of those experiences and part of it was it was in greek so i didn't really understand any of it but everyone did things differently in my immediate i grew up in steinbeck mennonites anybody any mennonites here all right good the Lord's blessing is upon you. Uh, no, uh, and everyone else too. But my assumption is that anything that was different than what I was taught was immediately wrong. Right? I didn't maybe necessarily say that or, or cognitively think it, but it was, just, it was just ingrained in my mind that everything that's different than how I do it is wrong and needs to be corrected. And that is the, just the most arrogant thought that we could have. And traveling internationally and seeing other cultures worship or just coming to Banff, I guess. That works, too. Uh, but you see all these other people worshiping in different ways, understanding things in different ways, praying in different ways is, is good for us. Because we get to see that, oh, this isn't the only way. I remember being at a Bible camp once and there was a group of Koreans that had come and they were helping. And when they prayed, they all prayed at the same time and i was like this is chaos can't handle this like it's not it's not orderly everyone sit down one person at a time it's clearly in the bible this is what we right and it's not but it was just a different way of doing things we need to be united together with one purpose and one mind what is that well two things come into that is honor christ as lord and proclaim his name those are the two things that we're called to do and so let's do that let's be united in that of course he says have sympathy have brotherly love uh, a tender heart those things he talked about briefly and saying that the world should look at the church they should see the church and they should see the love that they have for one another jesus says you will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another when someone is hurting the church should be the first to answer that when someone is going through difficulty the church should be the first to answer that it's going to cost us but it's, it's good because it's what God called us to do. And then the last thing he says, in a humble mind. This is becoming more increasingly uh, clear to me that without a humble mind, we're never going to grow in our relationship with Christ because if we think we're good enough, we're never going to recognize how good he really is. That's just a simple reality of our lives is those of us who have grown up in the church uh it can become very easy to assume that we deserve forgiveness we've been given it we lived a pretty good life maybe if you haven't done a lot of rebellious behavior you can start to think that man i like god thank you that you saved that person they sure needed you and we forget that oh i sure needed you too So we need to be reminded of that. We need to look in the mirror of our own hearts and recognize what's in there and submit ourselves to Christ saying, what Paul said, is I am the worst of sinners. Not because of even what I've done, but because of the heart that's within me As we are all on the same page then he reminds us, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. And just a, a couple texts back, he showed us the example of Christ and said, when Christ was reviled on, he didn't respond with anger. He cried out on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Sometimes that can be difficult because we can think, no, they know exactly what they're doing. They're harming me on purpose. But here's the reality is they don't actually know why they're doing what they're doing. When we have Christ in our hearts and in our lives, that should change the way in which we interpret and the way we receive and the way that we go through suffering because we don't suffer without hope. We suffer with hope. We suffer knowing that this is temporary. And so I think, this is just my opinion here, but I think the reason Peter goes back to these things is because he's already given them kind of the head knowledge of here's what happened, here's what Christ did here's the example this is what you should do and now he's trying to take it from what is just an idea or or maybe even this idea of a a belief and he's trying to turn it into conviction Howard Hendricks says it this way a belief is something that you will argue about but a conviction is something you'll die for and I think that is something we need to impart into our own hearts is it can be pretty easy to have religious arguments with people but are we willing to die for the sake of Christ? And I think, right, we always think, yeah, yeah, I would be willing to do that. Now, thank the Lord that we haven't been put in that position where we've had a gun to our head and it's been recant or be shot. Praise the Lord that we live in a country where we do have some religious freedom. But sometimes I think that if we didn't have our religious freedoms, perhaps it would st- the push would come to shove a little bit more and we would actually have to say, Are these convictions, or are these just intellectual things that we know? Are they things we really, really believe and are unwilling, unwilling to compromise on? He then goes to this idea, on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called. And I I don't do this very often. The young adult Bible study folks will know this, but the NIV translate this pretty good. And I'm not really a big NIV guy. But it says this here in this verse on the contrary repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing peter has said this several times he's going to say it in our next text in chapter four as well is that we have actually been called to suffer we have been called to suffer that's hard to swallow it's hard to deal with but again is if our suffering if by submitting to Christ, our suffering brings us closer to Christ, then wouldn't we say that suffering is good? It's necessary. It's worthwhile. Is, perhaps think of your own life and, and where you're at right now. And sometimes we can look back on our life and go, man, it's a good thing I didn't get this or, or do this, or God led me a slightly different direction because otherwise I wouldn't be here sometimes those things were terribly difficult to go through and we probably wouldn't choose to go through them again and yet we're grateful that we did go through them and that's a hard thing to process is that was crisis that was pain that was hurt i'm so glad i went through it but i don't want to go through it again it's, it's just this confusing thing in our minds, but because it causes us to grow. And so specifically, he's saying, now when people wrong you, not only are you to just suck it up, you're actually to bless them in return. Anybody find that really easy? When somebody wrongs us, man, we are just filled with this holy justice, not really holy at all, but we think it is. And we go, it's not fair, it's not right, this should be the case, this isn't good, and And Peter says, yeah, they're going to wrongfully hurt you and bless them for it. What a challenge that is. Then he takes us back to the Psalms and he reminds us, whoever desires to love life and see good days, first keep control of your tongue. That's a hard one, isn't it? Keep control of your tongue and keep your lips from speaking deceit is again, I'm just using this as the analogy because it's just rampant right now because of the season that it is. It is real easy to say some really rude things about our government. And yet, we haven't been called to do that. We haven't been told to name call those that are making decisions in front of us and call them names. In fact, the text says that we're supposed to honor them, we're supposed to submit to them, and now it says we're supposed to bless them back it's like this is push has come to shove now. So the question is, how are we going to respond to these things? And we all want to fight, and we all want to say, but, but there's a line. If you push too far, there's a line, and so we should get to fight back. But what did Jesus teach? Somebody punches you in the face, what do you do? Duck. No, what does he say? Turn the other cheek. Right, like, and I think Jesus is being serious in what he's saying i don't think he's just trying to use this analogy or this metaphor i think he's trying to say the reality is when you serve christ you are going to be persecuted for it how you respond shows what your conviction is do you trust in man or do you trust in god that's hard because trusting in god might mean that there comes with a huge amount of risk a huge amount of cost and ultimately it probably will in many parts of the world cost us our life so are we willing to do that? Are we willing to keep watching our tongue? Is just a few pages um, before in the book of James, James talks about it in this context. He kind of uses this boat analogy, and he says the tongue is like that little rudder. It's just this tiny little thing in, uh, in the context of our whole body, and yet so powerful. And it can do so much damage so quickly. We don't need to do a show of hands here, but how many of us have said something in a moment of anger that we wished we could take back? problem is you can't take back what you've said. And we can say all we want, why didn't mean that, but then why did we say it? Husbands and wives in those arguments and those conversations that sometimes turn a little bit heated and we say something and then we go back and we say, well, I I, I didn't actually mean that or or, uh, that was just said in the heat of the moment, that's not actually how I feel. I think what we really have to address Is the sin nature part of us actually did feel that and does think that so we have to deal with that we have to submit to Christ and become uh, or to submit to the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can do what's right rather than what's wrong and so watching our tongue is crucial Says, let him turn away from evil and notice what does it say after that verse 11 let him turn away from evil and somebody following along all of you are following along yes I'm sure and what do good It's not just enough to avoid evil. And this is kind of a problem that I had growing up a lot of was I really focused on, uh, as I was growing in my spiritual life, I really focused on not doing bad things. That was the goal. Don't do that. Don't do that. What happens then? What happens to your mindset? I think Jesus spoke a lot about the Pharisees about that, right? Is they were, I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this. Make sure that I don't do any of those bad things, and then I look negatively at those that do rather we're called not only just to avoid the bad stuff, but to do good. And so when a situation is in front of us, it's not enough just to say, man, I, I didn't give in to that, but then to go, but what did I do? Because sometimes just not giving into to sin is not the point. The point is that God's calling us to be holy, and so not only do we not give in to sin, we turn it and we go and do something that is good, something that is for him. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Here's the the reminder again and this happened in, in verse seven of our last text as well is that god will listen to us when we submit to him but if we are not willing to submit to him we should have no right to complain that our prayers are not being answered if we cry out to god and we say god i need your help now but we do not submit to his authority and to his leadership he should not have one bit of responsibility to answer that prayer because he said, when you call out to me. Let's look back at seven just, just to see. It. He's talking to husbands specifically, but the principle is true of all of us. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, show, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So we're not saying that God doesn't hear. But what peter's saying is that if you don't want husband specifically if you don't treat your wives the way that you're supposed to call them or supposed to you're called to treat them then your prayers are going to be hindered the things that you ask for god he's he's going to say you know what let's deal with this first we have to be obedient to god okay verse 13 this is where it gets a little bit strange He says this then, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Do you find that a strange verse? He's writing to exiles who are being persecuted for their faith to encourage them to suffer well, and then he says, but who's there to harm you if you do good? Like, doesn't it feel like everyone's there to harm you? they're actually in the midst of suffering for us we can look at it and we can go, okay well we still have religious freedom at least in this part of the world and so yeah there's some things that we face but nothing like what they're facing or, or many of our other Christian brothers and sisters are in the world and so we can prepare ourselves this is what we're gonna do but they're in the midst of it and Peter says who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good and I quoted this in, in Romans 8:31 last week but what does Paul say if God is for us isn't the implication there everyone like if God is for us who can be against us? Well, there's There's sin nature for one There's the oppression and spiritual forces that Paul talks about in Romans 8 that is all around against us So what is he saying? Like does that make any sense? Well again, if you go back to the context of first Peter, who's he writing to the elect? What? Oh come on now people chapter 1 let's go back there's too much see the evening service has not been good for me because now i expect like feedback to those who are elect exiles in verse one exiles peter has been reminding them over and over and over this world this is not your home This is not where your hope is supposed to be. Your hope is supposed to be in God, and your hope is supposed to be for eternity. So if that's the case, then who can harm you if you're zealous for doing what is good? In other words, he's saying this, is that even if they attack you, what good is that? Because you get to go to be with Christ in heaven for eternity. Put your focus on eternity and less on the here and now, and that is something exceedingly difficult for us to do in our materialistic age. In fact, yesterday... My brother and sister-in-law were out and we we're kind of visiting about some things and she mentioned something that we probably all Struggle with at some point is this reality that it's so much easier to focus on now and not to look to the future as far as eternity is concerned But peter and paul in romans 8 are reminding us that even if they kill us for our faith actually that's good news for us Because we'll be with christ for eternity And if that's where our focus is, then the world can do nothing to us that matters beyond the here and now. So do we live for what's coming or do we live to have things? Do we live so that our house can get a little bit bigger, so we can have a slightly nicer car, so that we can go on more vacations? Is that the focus of what we're doing or is the focus of what we're doing, I want to lay up treasure not on earth, but I want to lay up treasure in heaven because that will never be destroyed. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sakes, which again is kind of an interesting sentence because many of them are, he says, you will be blessed. And this is where the prosperity gospel takes these verses and makes them say something that they don't say. And even the immediate context of the verse as a whole shows that. Is he's talking to people who are suffering and being beaten and being tortured and being torn in two and lit on fire and all these things. And he's saying, you will be blessed for doing good and somehow the prosperity gospel has said that means you'll have lots of health wealth and prosperity You'll, you'll have everything that you want and everything that you need and in the very context of the verse it's actually arguing the exact opposite and saying it's not about here and now and what you can have it's about what you're laying up for the future in heaven and so we need to have that, that future mindset that everything that we're doing here and now is ultimately meant for eternity. Is with your kids. If you have kids at home, is stop, cons- stop worrying so much about the sports that they play or the extracurricular activities that they're in and start worrying, what is, am I modeling what it means to be a follower of Christ so that I can do everything in my power to show my son or daughter what it means to be in love with Jesus Christ? That's what we're called to. Not that everything else not that all those other things are bad things but if we show them that you know what church will go to when it's convenient prayer will do when it's convenient but we will do everything necessary to make sure that we're at hockey practice or we're at volleyball practice or we're at school on time oh we forgot to read our the bible today but that's okay like we don't want to get legalistic about it And, and and yet all these other extracurricular activity things we make sure that we're doing and we're right and we're there and we're committed. And I remember playing soccer being told that you're making a commitment to your team and so you cannot let your team down. Well, let's turn that about Jesus. Because you made a commitment to the body of Christ. When you, if you're a member here or if you've been baptized, you have, been, you have made that public declaration that this, the spiritual life, is the thing that you want far more than the material. And So that's what we're being called to to? Are we going to put our effort and our time in that? Or are we going to get tricked into the reality of the culture that we find ourselves where money, power, fame, whatever it might be, becomes the primary motivating factor? In your hearts, verse 15, in your hearts, honor Christ as the Lord. Then he says this, and there's two, there's two things in this verse that I think are really interesting. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So there's, there's two parts of this that are quite interesting. Is One of them, we often use this text to talk about, like, we should always be prepared to preach the gospel. That's actually not what it says you want to do that, 2 Timothy 4.2, that's a much better basis for that. Now, the truth is we should always be prepared to preach the gospel. But That's not what this text tells us. In fact, it's telling us as they persecute you, they will wonder why you have hope despite your persecution, and you need to tell them about that hope. Always be prepared to tell them about that hope, no matter how hard it gets, no matter how painful it gets. But do it with gentleness and respect. And sometimes this can be difficult because, I mean, A, when we're being persecuted, it's hard to treat the other person gently and respectfully, right? Because they're not respecting us, and they're certainly not being gentle with us. They're being condescending. They're being physically abusive, whatever it might be. And yet we're called to do that with gentleness and respect because we're called to show that we also are under the same curse as far as sin leads to death and death leads to eternity in hell so we've been given Christ, and so we have hope. We are not going to die here on the earth and then suffer for eternity. We will die here on the earth and then be with Christ in glory for eternity. And so can we share that with everyone who is persecuting us? And can we do it with gentleness and respect? In First Timothy, and we talked about this at our board meeting, is First Timothy chapter 1, uh, Paul says, the aim of our charge is this, that basically is that we would love one another with a pure heart. That's what we're called to do, not just fellow Christians, not just our brothers and sisters, but our enemies, those who revile us, those who persecute us. We are to treat them with love, and so when we are being persecuted by them, we ought to respond very differently than how they would expect. Um, There's a man named Richard Wombrandt. Anybody familiar with that name? He was uh, in a Nazi concentration camp, and he's written uh, several books about suffering for Christ. And and they're incredibly powerful um, And one of the stories goes that every single time his beat the person who came to beat him would come he, he, It was a specific time every day And he knew it was coming that he would go on his knees and that he would pray for the salvation of the man beating him the whole time he was being beaten. And actually it, the story goes that what happens is he gets more the the person doing the beating gets more and more angry and the beatings get more and more severe because he gets angrier and angrier that this person is praying for him. And then ultimately he one day goes there to beat him and he says something along the lines of, don't you know that I have the power to kill you? Which is the same thing that Pilate basically says to Jesus. And Richard Rombrand responds the same way. He said, the only authority that you've been getting over me is from Jesus Christ. And he goes to, he goes to strike him and he drops on his knees and he comes to faith in the cell. Suffering But suffering for the sake of Christ Can do incredible things Alright Now the difficult part At least difficult in my brain Maybe it's not in yours Uh, For Christ So this first verse 18 is okay For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous right just peter's just telling us jesus the only righteous person suffered for everyone all of us who are unrighteous that he would bring us to god being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit so that part is is fairly straightforward but then he takes it to kind of this strange verse in 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And so you kind of read that and you're like, you were here and you just rapidly, all of a sudden, went to this bizarre analogy with Noah and and Jesus proclaiming to the saints in prison and what exactly does this mean? Well, when I don't understand anything, I uh, read to you from what other people say because they're smarter than me. Uh, oh, here it is. I knew I would find it. Commentator Thomas Schreiner says this He says, At this point, a comparison is drawn between salvation in the ark and baptism. In both instances, believers are saved through the waters of judgment, since baptism portrays salvation through judgment. The mere mechanical act, of baptism—oh, pardon me. This is what you should not do, is you should not read like that. I'm going to read the right section. That's for later. That was a sneak peek. Let's go back to 19. So He says this. Uh, it's the same guy, so that's the good news. He says this. Uh, the word spirits, which is the Greek word numinism, which is a plural, is, re- is referring to the unsaved human spirits of Noah's day. So Christ, in the Spirit, pro- proclaimed the gospel in the days of Noah through Noah. The unbelievers who heard Christ preaching did not obey in the days of Noah and are now suffering judgment, and so they are the spirits in prison. Several reasons to support this view. He says this: uh, first, Peter calls Noah a preacher, which corresponds to the noun keroso, which is proclaim in Greek, in First Peter three verse nineteen. Uh, Second, Peter says the Spirit of Christ was speaking through the Old Testament prophets, which he's already said in chapter 1, verse 11. Thus, Christ could have been speaking through Noah as an Old Testament prophet. The third thing, the context indicates that Christ was preaching through Noah, who was in a persecuted minority, and God saved Noah, which is similar to the situation in Peter's time. Christ is now preaching through, uh, preaching the gospel through Peter to his readers, to a persecuted minority and explaining that God will save them. So that's my best understanding of that verse is that he goes to this strange analogy to remind them uh, essentially this idea, the same thing that we read in 1 Kings 18 and 19 where Elijah is like, he thinks he's the only one left who hasn't surrendered to, to worship a false god and he gets really upset with God, and he says, I'm the only one left, and then eventually God tells him, actually, you know what? There's 7,000 other people that I have saved for myself that have not bowed the, knee, bowed the knee to Baal, but you don't know about them. And so I think in the same way, you're dealing with people who are being persecuted like crazy. Like I said, time of Nero, they're being ripped in half. They're being set on fire. all The craziest stuff you could imagine is happening, and Peter's reminding them that this kind of thing also has happened in the past that when Noah was there, only eight people were righteous amongst the whole world. And I think the reality is is we need to be reminded often because when we suffer, sometimes we start to close ourselves in and we start to think, no one knows what I'm going through. But Hebrews tell us that we have a high priest who has suffered in every way that we have suffered so that we can identify with Him because He knows what it's like to go through suffering. So then, verse 21, about baptism. And it, and it seems to argue, verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, right? this analogy of water, now saves you. And if you've been here at all in the summer, uh d- nick both preached and i preached as well on the reality that baptism is an outward demonstration of what's happening inward so the act of baptism does not save at all and if you die uh repentant in your sins but never having been baptized then you are assured a place in heaven with jesus but here it kind of sounds like he's saying the opposite And again some bad theology is brought up in some of this where we say well now it's clear we have to be baptized but all that's doing is actually not reading the rest of the verse again baptism verse 21 baptism which corresponds to this now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body so he seems to say it does but it also doesn't so again we need to read from our friend thomas schreiner because this is good So he says this, The mere mechanical act of baptism does not save. Peter explicitly says, Not as a a removal of dirt from the body, meaning that the passing of water over the body does not cleanse anyone, but rather baptism saves you because because it represents inward faith as evidenced by uh, by one's appearance to God for the forgiveness of one's sins. Baptism saves only insofar as it is grounded in the death and the resurrection of Christ baptism is a visual representation of the fact that christians are clothed with christ and in unison with christ they share his victory over sin So for us to get into so why would peter say this why would he seemingly say You you almost have to be baptized. Well again uh, cultural understanding is important is when you read through the early church there's this reality that if you came to christ you were baptized That's just the way it was right Uh, John the Baptist went out proclaiming what repent and be baptized two things so we can try and create a theology that says actually what John's saying is you have to be baptized to find salvation but the repentance is the actual the important part of that not the actual baptism baptism is just outward displaying what you have done inwardly so let's go to the Greek just a little bit here because this is really interesting uh, this is from John Piper because again, I just don't know Greek very well it says this There are two things there are comp. there. Oh, that's a tough word. Let's do this again There are accompanying acts and causative acts And so Piper explains he uses this analogy he says this if someone is going to be late for the train and you yell out to them Grab your hat and run or you're gonna miss the train. Does the hat have anything to do with that? clearly one does not have to grab your hat so that you can put the little jets on and run faster right like that's obviously not the point but one could say that grab your hat run you're going to miss the train the running is the important part so one is the accompanying act which is the hat and why someone calls you uh excuse me why someone calls for you to have that hat is not the crucial part of what's being said but that you have to run and that's the causative act run or you will be late it's the same here when we understand it properly baptism doesn't actually do the saving it's thrown in as an accompanying act because it has significance and it has importance especially with the culture of the day but it isn't the central issue the central issue is to repent every time in in new testament scripture where you kind of see baptism done. It's someone comes to faith and that next act is baptism. That's just what happened then, right? And the best example of that is the Ethiopian eunuch, right, who's like, he, he's uh, told what the prophet of Isaiah means. He understands who Christ is and he says, I need to, I need that. And so he confesses Christ the Savior and then he sees water while he's in the chariot on the side and he says, okay, I guess we go do this now. Because that's just the assumption this is what happens and in that culture that's what they did in our culture baptism has kind of been hijacked and the understanding of it's been changed depending on what denomination or or upbringing you've been from and so we've we've kind of approached it with a little bit of uh, a little bit of leeriness going okay when you understand what baptism is then you can be baptized and so we'll say that's 12 years old is some arbitrary number but if baptism is an accompanying act for the causative act of repentance, then if somebody knows that they need to come to Christ, that they need salvation for their sins because apart from Christ they're going to go to hell, and they confess Jesus Christ as Lord. If we elevate baptism and say, you actually have to understand that a little better, but as long as you just, you don't have to understand salvation. That's really what we're saying. And so rather we should say, do you understand salvation? Yes, here it is. All right, let's be baptized. And that's what Peter's kind of getting at here, is this is just a reality of what you do. And he's assuming that all those Christians have been baptized because that's what happens in the culture. The last verse then, he finishes with this power and this this proclamation to us. Jesus has gone into heaven. And he's at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Simply put, is Jesus is above everything. And so there's nothing for us to worry about. There'll still be pain, there'll still be suffering, there'll still be hurt, there'll still be trial, there'll still be things that go the wrong way in our lives, but ultimately God has everything in his hand and so we can trust him. And so when tomorrow comes and goes and a government gets elected and you maybe don't like it, you can know that God has purpose in that and that you can trust him. That doesn't mean we just accept it and go, oh, okay, I'll just do everything that they do. And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. We can submit to authority and yet disagree with them. We can disagree respectfully. We can show them that we love them and that we care for them because they are created in the image of God and God loves them desperately, but we disagree with them and here's why. And that's okay. But we can also trust that God knows what he's doing. And if we need to go through some season of persecution if we need to go through a season of suffering of trial whatever it is that we can trust that God has the best in store for us because that's what he wrote in Romans that's what he told Paul to say is God works for the good of those who love him and it might be for my good that I go through a time of suffering because that might refine me and bring me closer to Christ and nothing in the world can compare with that so Peter's saying have conviction this isn't theoretical. This isn't just knowledge. This isn't just, yeah, suffer and suffer well. But he's saying there's reason for your suffering. There's a reason for the pain. There's a reason for the hurt. And choose Christ over the world because the suffering you're about to deal with on the earth is, not, as Paul says, is not even worth comparing to what's going to come in eternity with Christ. It's going to be so much greater. So let's live with that in focus, with that in mind. Not the here and now but what's coming one day. Let's pray.